All right, so good morning, everyone. We are in, I believe, our sixth week of this study on the Holy Spirit. Once again, uh, today's lesson is adapted from a book by Sinclair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit. And I'm following the outline from his chapter. I'm going to be drawing from his insights repeatedly. So if you hear anything good, it's probably Sinclair Ferguson. If you hear anything confusing or bad, that's probably my fault. So my apologies. Um, And I still don't have a Scottish accent like he does. So sorry about that. Um, What's up? That's true. It's true. I could try. No, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear my attempt at the accent. So anyway. um, yeah, exactly. It's, this is recorded, so can't do that. Anyway, last week, we, uh, for those of you who weren't here, we covered what Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, has to teach us about Pentecost, um, the events of Acts, uh, Acts 2 um, that are promised in both Luke 24 and Acts 1. And this week, we're going to look more closely at what John's Gospel has to tell us. Uh, by way of introduction, I, I said last week that It's not overstating the case to say that to lose the doctrine of the Trinity is to lose Christianity itself. It's to lose the gospel. Theologian Michael Reeves says that, he he argues that God is love because God is a Trinity. He says we can be saved because God is triune. And he says, he also argues that our very ability to live the Christian life comes from the Trinity. So this is not just some side, you know, just doctrine that's, that we can like leave, safely leave to the side. This is essential to our faith. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, real quick, just to give a, a, a recommendation that's been helpful for me, if you guys are interested in... Um, diving more into the subject of the trinity i I highly recommend delighting in the trinity by michael reeves it's a wonderful book really accessible you could read it in a few hours and in a better way than i've ever seen before he um makes the the doctrine of the trinity accessible and shows how um essential it is and in such an encouraging way uh a delightful way you might say has anyone here read that book, Delight in the Trinity? Okay. Come on, man. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so go ahead and turn to the back of your notes. Just by way of review, I know that last week we talked about how we want to, we um, of course, acknowledge, as the Bible does, that something... Um, monumental is happening at Pentecost. There is a change that's happening. Pentecost is a is an incredible moment in redemptive history with resounding implications. And so many different parts of the Bible point to its significance. But at the same time, we want to emphasize, as the Bible does, that it's not like the Holy Spirit was doing nothing and then Jesus was raised, Pentecost happened, and then the Holy Spirit was active. That's not the case either. Um, So we're not going to necessarily go into it in detail, but I wanted to just include that on your notes um, 
to see uh, some of the ways that the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. Um, as he uh, set apart, set aside prophets, priests, and kings for office, PPK, right, Arnie? Um, he, he empowered his people uh, specifically. Uh, um, you know, he breathed life into creation. So anyway, uh, wanted to give that to you. And if anyone wants some of the verse references for that, I can give those to you later. All right. Oh, and, and I wanted to, uh, just another summary statement from last week. In Pentecost, the last days, the end times, are officially beginning, and they're beginning publicly. Pentecost was a public event that marked the transition from the old covenant to the new. And so in Pentecost, the ascended Christ is now pouring out his spirit as the risen Lord. And it's, it's ushering in uh, the age of the new creation. So now let's turn to John's testimony. Um, we're going to start out in John 20. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. I want to hopefully uh, make sense of this because I think it could potentially be confusing. So could someone read John 20, 21 through 23, nice and loud so the recording can pick it up and then we're going to discuss. Um, and yeah, and keep in mind, John 20, this is after... Christ's resurrection, this is actually on the day of his resurrection that he appears to the disciples. You got it, Desmond? Thank you. John 20, 21, 23. Yep. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Thank you. So, can anyone tell me why I say this might be confusing in light of what we've talked about? Any thoughts? Yeah, like in this passage you're yeah. saying? It's like, that's why it could be yeah. confusing. Like, oh, they're now receiving Holy Spirit. What was he doing before mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The apostles appear to be brokers of salvation. Hmm. Yeah. Like they, they have the authority that we would think only Christ has, perhaps. Is that what you're saying? Seem to be given that? Yeah. Hopefully we can make sense of both of these things. I think it's also potentially confusing because um, there's kind of a debate about, is this John's Pentecost? Like, is this event that we just read about, is this John's, uh, is this what John would view as Pentecost? Whereas Luke is saying something else is Pentecost. And so liberal scholars would try to drive a wedge between John and Luke. Um, and, And that would have bad implications for the reliability of the Bible. So this is important to understand because of the doctrine of Scripture, for one. Um, so let's try to let's try to unpack this. Uh, let me know if, if something's still confusing. The reason, for starters, to say that this is John's Pentecost is very nonsensical because John 
has already, um, in John 14 through 16, he has written clearly about the Spirit's coming after the ascension. So he said, we're going to read these texts later, but he's, he's talking about the Spirit's going to come after I've ascended, and he has not yet ascended to the Father. He even says that very uh, right earlier in uh, John chapter uh, 20, in verse 17, he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. It couldn't be more clear. And so this can't be what John is talking about in John 14 through 16, because in John 14 through 16, he makes clear that this will happen after his ascension. So what, what is happening here, I, I want to highlight two things. The first thing is a sim- symbolism, symbolism of the new creation. The second thing is the apostles being set apart in their apostolic office. So first, a, a word on the new creation aspect. John is, similarly to how, how Luke did a little bit, with the, the um, how he wrote about the spirit coming in as a rushing wind, uh, bringing to mind Genesis 1, the, the spirit, the wind of God was hovering over the waters. John does, does something similar that I think is actually even more clear. He takes us back to the beginning with a clear um, connection to when God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2-7. Jesus is now, that, that was creation, now Jesus is breathing new creation life into his disciples. Not only does this point to Jesus' divinity, but it marks the beginning of the new creation that has now begun because of Christ's victorious resurrection and glorification. He now has an eternal and incorruptible resurrection body. Um, And though obviously the new creation is not consummated, it has begun. And so this is new creation. The second thing is apostolic office. The disciples are specifically being set aside and set apart for a new stage in their ministry where they will now serve as apostolic ambassadors of Christ who is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Christ is going to be absent. He's not yet absent in body because he hasn't ascended, but when he ascends, he's going to be absent in body, but of course present by his spirit as we'll talk about even more soon. So now the disciples are serving as his representatives in an escalated way uh, that, that they weren't before and thus are commissioned to forgive sins by the authoritative preaching of the gospel. I think that's, that's key. It's by the preaching of the word. And so in the narrative... The focus on the disciples is is unique. This, I don't think this is one of those passages that we should read as Jesus speaking directly to us. Although, I think that you could argue that we do participate in the John 20 event insofar as we can proclaim the gospel faithfully to others. Because in proclaiming the gospel, we're holding forth the forgiveness of Christ and we are withholding, in a sense, forgiveness to those who reject him. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, any questions before we go on? Yes. You have a question? 
Okay. If you have a question, that's fine. Although I'd be put on the hot seat because kids ask the hardest questions, so that would be, that's intimidating. Um, go ahead and uh, look at the next section in your notes. We're gonna talk about spirit and cross. Um, go to John 7, and could I have someone read John 7, verses 37 through 39? John 7, verses 37 through 39. Desmond. Nice and loud, Desmond. 37 to 39, okay. Yeah. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thank you. So, has the Spirit already been at work? What do you guys think? Okay, nice. Yeah, we can say that. But, has the Spirit been given yet? Not your question. Yeah, no. He has not been given in this end times Pentecost since. He has not been given as the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ. Christ hasn't yet been crucified or raised, so it's impossible. And it says it right there in the text, verse 39, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now what is living water symbolic of? According to verse 39. spirit and and it's also uh if you have time later you can look at john 4 uh, where jesus makes use of this same image and what is the source of this living water in this passage what is the source of the living water who is the source jesus yeah that's right he says, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I think it's all the more clear that Jesus is the source in John 4. Um, in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. So, taking all these pieces, putting them together. He's not, it's not to say that the Spirit's not been active, but in order for the Spirit to be sent in this way that John 7 is talking about, the crucifixion is necessary. Sinclair Ferguson says, during the crucifixion, from, from Christ's side, both the water and the blood flowed. The blood of forgiveness, the blood representing forgiveness, and the water representing the Spirit. And so only as the crucified one can he give the messianic spirit and I, I thought this was really cool to think about all the double entendre and multiple layers of meaning in John because you know he's talking about living water throughout Christ is is the source of the living water um, just as 
you know, he, he's, he's the rock. First uh, Corinthians 10 talks about him being the rock that was struck during the, the, their wandering in the wilderness. That, that water, life-sustaining water flowed from. So Christ is the fulfillment of this. Um, he's even the, the temple. He, uh, the God dwells in him fully um, because he is God the Son, um, and, which brings to mind uh, the, the new temple in Ezekiel 47 that, that the massive amounts of water um, flow from it. It just gets... Uh, the, the water, the, the, the stream gets deeper and deeper. Um, massive amounts of water flowing from it. And that Jesus is the new temple that the Spirit flows from. And so it's crazy to think that, that there's even, uh, even when Jesus is upon the cross, we see this imagery at use because Jesus is the one who's now thirsty. The one who living water comes from is in our place thirsting um, as he takes the weight of our sin upon himself. So he's thirsting so that we who are thirsty may never thirst again, that we can receive the fullness of his eternally thirst-quenching spirit. So again, John 19.34 talks about the, the soldier pierces his side and the water and blood flows out. Um, Jesus' is atoning sacrifice for sins, his purchasing of forgiveness, symbolized in the blood, in the, the water representing the new life of the messianic spirit that is flowing from him as the crucified one. It's flowing from him as crucified. It's also interesting that apparently in the original language, it John 739 just straight up says the spirit was not yet and so again we we know that this is not saying if, if we just took that at face value what would that potentially imply yeah like as if the spirit didn't exist yeah so again we, we gotta you know we want to pay careful attention to detail um and we know that this must refer not to an absence, just a straight up absence of the spirit or an absence of the spirit's activity, but it is that the spirit has not yet come in his end times fullness as the spirit of the crucified and resurrected Lord. And of course, I mean, yeah, the, the straight, what, what, you know, what, you could be tempted to say is the literal reading that that's negated even by the Spirit's work at Jesus' baptism. So um, it's interesting. So sometimes the literal reading is not the literal reading, if that makes sense. Um, so Ferguson pointed out that I think a lot of times when uh, John 14, 7 says that the Spirit... Um, is with the disciples. Jesus tells them the spirit is with you and later will be in you. And I think that I've in the past taken that to mean that, okay, so yeah, in the Old Testament, you know, the spirit was at work, but he didn't necessarily like indwell believers, whereas now he does. But I, I think I've become convinced that that's, I, I think that's debatable, but at least I, I've become convinced that this passage isn't really speaking to that. 
what I think um, Fer Ferguson helps bring this out um, that it's actually saying it's actually referring to how the spirit was on Christ before his exaltation before his death and resurrection the spirit's on Christ and so in that sense the spirit of truth is with the disciples because they're with Jesus they're living with him they're with him um, the spirit is among them in uh, in Jesus as he dwells with him um, but the, so the distinction Jesus is making is that after his exaltation the spirit will be in you as the spirit of me as, as the exalted messiah um so does that distinction make sense I, I don't think it's really conclusively speaking to this indwelling question it's saying no the spirit's with you right now because you're with jesus but he's going to indwell you in this new covenant way um after after my resurrection any questions there Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the groundwork, what needed to happen for the Spirit's dwelling in this new capacity is, again, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and his reign at the right hand of the Father. Because as Acts, Acts 2 talks about, uh, we mentioned last week, he received the promised Spirit from the Father. And that's when he was able to pour, pour out the Spirit at Pentecost. Um, so I want to turn, this, this part is really interesting. We're, we're going to look at conviction and conversion. Go to John 16. I, I have to confess again, this, is, this passage has been confusing to me. Not even the verse 7, but verses 8 through 11. Like, what exactly does this mean? Um, so let's uh, have someone read John 16, 7 through 11. And we'll talk about it. Who can read John 16, 7 through 11? Thanks, Will. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Thank you. What's what's something surprising said here? Attention. This is a I think a tension that was already highlighted last week. But what surprises you from what Jesus says here? Yeah, you're saying, like, what does it mean that he's going to convict the world of righteousness? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, I agree. That I, Yeah. On its face, that's very confusing. Yeah, because I, I think we get convict of sin, but convict of righteousness. Hmm. Yeah, anything else that's surprising from this passage? There's a low-hanging fruit answer here. I mean, we've already talked about it a couple times. Yeah. He says it's to your advantage. Yeah. And I think, like, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, like, hey, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that it would be to your advantage if Jesus left you if you were sitting 
leaving things. Yeah. It's better for you. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly for his disciples, they probably wouldn't agree with him. Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, we'll hopefully relieve the tension. First, I want to point out that, especially verses 8 through 11, um, before we think about how this might apply, you know, I think when I've read this in the past, I've kind of thought about, okay, so I'm sharing the gospel with a friend, and I'm thinking about, okay, how is the Holy Spirit going to do this conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Um, Thinking about, like, what does that mean exactly? Um, Those are okay questions to ask, but first, we need to ask, like, what did this mean um, specifically to the original audience, the 12? Um, And I want to I want to argue that this is like a specific prophecy that's actually fulfilled in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So let's go go ahead and turn to Acts 2, 22 to 24. I'll, I'll read it for us. Um, you can turn there if you want to follow along. Um, so Acts 2, 22 through 24, Peter is in the midst of preaching, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Excuse me. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Does anyone have any idea of what these verses might have to do with John 16, especially verses 8 through 11? Any thoughts? You may be able to even bring out something I didn't see, so don't be shy. What I want to point out is that the Spirit is doing here what was talked about in John 16. He's convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What each of those means is, one, it's John 16.8 is not just speaking of a general conviction of sin. Um, the Spirit was already doing that. Like, take Psalm 51, for example. David did not come to this repentance by his own inherent goodness. It was the Spirit's work. But when he says he's going to come and convict the world of sin, it's talking about the specific sin of rejecting Jesus. And so he's talking in, in Acts 2, he's, he's indicting them that this man who is attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, and you knew this, yet you delivered him up to be crucified. You killed him. So he's going to convict of this specific sin with regards to Jesus. Uh, the Messiah who's now been fully revealed. Um, it's it's a, not a general conviction, but the specific guilt of rejecting Christ. Second, the righteousness of Christ, uh, which Lucy uh, helpfully brought up. This is obscure, kind of. Again, it's not, it's, it's a, 
what John 16 is getting at is not just righteousness in general, but specifically the righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of his righteousness, that he was sinless, that he was, he was not crucified because he was a, you know, because he was wreaking havoc on the Roman Empire or uh, even, even some misunderstanding or because he was, uh, he was a criminal. He was, he was crucified as the sinless one. Um, he was God even raised him from the dead because he was righteous it was not possible for death to hold him because he is righteous and so that's, that's what the righteousness is getting at and then finally judgment it proves judgment um, Acts, Acts 2 is talking about how he was raised up from death he defeated death in this and that is a sign that victory over death is bad news. Who do you think that's bad news for? Satan. Exactly. So judgment, this is, this is talking about the judgment on death, on Satan. Um, his exaltation proves the defeat of his enemies. So when John 16, 11 says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world, that Satan is judged, that's what it's referring to. Um, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we want to start here before we talk about what this might look like today when, you know, you're talking to someone, sharing the gospel. Um, what, what was it specifically alluding to? Um, I, it's also helpful to see that John 16, it, it ultimately has a Christological and redemptive historical focus. What, what, I, what I mean by that is that it's about the person and work of Christ, and it's, about, it's, it's revealing to us specific things about the history of God working salvation. And so the Spirit's going to be doing something... Um, Although, although he's already been convicting, um, he's already been doing these things in a way, it's now in this new era, it's going to be happening in a heightened and specific way with regards to Christ, his righteousness, our guilt in rejecting him, and the end of the age's judgment that's upon us, the defeat of death. Um, yeah, any... Any questions or thoughts before we go on? I think remembering the connection between um, what's being said about the Spirit, the Gospels, and um, Jesus' mission, the kingdom of God is, is important. We have that as a category as being in relation to Christ and his messianic mission and ministry. to see, okay, what 
what is this saying about maybe the Old Testament and how that, which can be helpful, but it's, it, it, it kind of yeah. context, right? The yeah. Gospels have a context, even when you're dealing with history. So I think it helps yeah. to, to nail it on that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the hope of this this study is that we will treasure Christ more. That we'll see how the work of Christ is um, changes everything. And, you know, people in the Old Testament look forward to it, but we have the privilege to look clearly at what angels long to look at. And the Spirit, this is the Spirit's delight to glorify Christ. He wants us to treasure Christ. That's, that's his... That is one of the main aspects of his work in our lives. Um, so yeah, thank you, Desmond. Any other, anything else? Yeah. I know, I, I used to think, I wish that I could have walked around with the disciples and one of, one of the bands that saw Jesus and saw everything that happened back then. Yeah. I wish I could have, I wish I could interview Paul did his interpretation on things. Christians have probably always thought like this. But it's all wrong. We have the ideal. In the New Testament, we have total sufficiency for us. In the New Testament, together with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, is better than we've been there. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible to think about. It's better than if we'd been sitting there with the twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I mean, and, or sorry, were you going to say something else? That's all. Yeah, no, thank you. Amen. Yeah, I mean, what you said made me think of, yeah, even if we were sitting with the twelve, apart from the Spirit's work, we would be dull. Like, our hearts would be dull. It's like, oh, cool. Jesus, teacher, cool. We need the Spirit to bring life. Um, life from deadness, our, our deadness and our sin and apathy. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you, Steve. That was really good. It, that's honestly a very great uh, transition to our next section. Inspiration. Go to John 14. This is also something that we need to talk about because of how easily it can be misapplied. John 14 is during Jesus' farewell sermon, um, and he, he reveals that the Spirit will teach and bring to remembrance what Jesus has said. So could someone read John 14, 25, and 26? Thanks, Anna. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I think that this passage is often read as if it's, um, you know, kind of talking about, all right, when you're washing dishes and you think of a Bible verse that you don't think you've ever memorized before, that's like the Spirit doing this um, or, or something like that. That it's, um, or maybe in a moment of difficulty, uh, something comes to mind. Um, not saying the spirit does not act in those ways but i don't think that is what this is getting at so to to understand what it is teaching again 
we want to remember that this is a specific promise to the apostles. Before I go on, does anyone want to anticipate where I'm going with this? What, what do you think this specific promise to the apostles is fulfilled in? Yep. Yes, Harrison. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you're right. This is, this is fulfilled in the writing of the New Testament scriptures. Script, the New Testament was either written directly by some of the apostles themselves, or at the very least, they were written according to apostolic testimony. Their testimony, their teaching, their guidance by those who walked closely with the apostles. And so this, this, is, this should make us thankful for God's word. John 15 also says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I think this is helpful because it shows the joint activity of the Spirit and the Apostles. The New Testament is, a, is simultaneously written by man and is God-breathed. It's the work of the Spirit as he moved these men who were with Christ to write God-breathed scripture. He's the one who taught them all things and brought to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. And so in John 16... Um, could someone real quick, whoever gets there first, read John 16, 13 through 14? Take what is mine and declare it to you. To the twelve. Not Judas Iscariot, but. Um, he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is certainly revealed to us in the New Testament. You know, the book of Revelation being the most obvious example. So. There is a prophetic aspect of the New Testament. It tells us what is to come, how history will conclude at the return of Christ. And um, like, like Steve pointed out, this shows the sufficiency 
of the scriptures. We have all we need for life, salvation, and godliness because the Spirit took what was Christ and declared it to the apostles who then had it preserved through the writing of scripture. So to bring this all together, of course these verses have significance for us today. Absolutely. But not in the way that we might commonly assume, as if it refers to the Spirit zapping knowledge into our heads. Like zapping a Bible verse in when we need it. Um, that's kind of what I used to imagine. But it's teaching, it, so it's not teaching direct revelation from the Spirit to believers, or it's, it's also um, against the, the Roman Catholic belief. It's not a corporate revelation to officers. Um, but this underscores the God-breathed reality of the New Testament scriptures that we have today. And that's why it applies to us um, in that by means of the witness and testimony of the apostles who were spirit-guided into all truth, and who wrote um, or led the authoring of the New Testament, that is how we are able to know Christ truly and his future purposes for us and all of creation. So the Spirit leads us into all truth, but through the Word. He teaches us all things through the, through the ordinary ministry of the Word. And he bears witness about Christ in and through the reading and preaching of the word. We can, we can never separate the work of the spirit from the word or the word from the spirit. The spirit works through the word and the word becomes powerful and life-giving in the lives of people by the spirit. So... We don't want to divorce those. The Spirit works through His Word. What's up, Desmond? That's really good. I think what you're saying, what you just explained there, how the Spirit is um, using the Word, working through the Word, pointing to Christ, um, He's being a constant witness that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that He's going to do, you know, by the Spirit, everything that has been prophesied about Him. So when you think about... Um, there are places in the scripture that talk about the spirit testifying to Christ. Um, and I remember last year sometime when I was preaching a sermon on, on this subject um, and just reading and studying, seeing that um, just in, in antiquity or in that time, um, when someone wanted to make a, a case for someone's character, they would call um, that person's closest companion to sort of testify to their character. Um, and you see that language used about the spirit in relation to Christ. He's constantly pointing to Christ and testifying that this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, this is the one empowered by the Spirit to fulfill his ministry. And so that's what he's doing in mm. the world even even now as people come and believe the gospel. He's testifying to Christ and saying, yes, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. Mm. So even when you think about that, John 14, 26, um, that the Spirit comes and going to bring back to their remembrance and therefore it is tied to them writing the gospels you think about the old testament and say well did the old testament prophets write apart from the spirit 
up and said, well, no, they didn't want to depart from the Spirit. But again, this yeah. is highlighting Jesus' mission and ministry. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. have it in that category. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good. Yeah, it's not to say the Spirit was inactive in the Old Testament. But yeah, the uniqueness of Christ and his ministry. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, another... As has already been pointed out, there's, there's some tension with Jesus saying, it's better for you that I leave so that the Spirit can come. So another, another puzzle piece, you know, maybe missing piece of why that's true is communion. Um, the Spirit's coming at Pentecost ushers in a new stage of communion with the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit was present before, but it is true that believers now enter into a more intimate relationship with him through Pentecost. And as, as we talked about last week briefly, the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts for the building up of God's people more fully and more widely now at Pentecost um, and post-Pentecost. Um, so every single one of you in this room who has the Spirit has spiritual gifts. It's not a question. If, if you are in Christ, then you also have been gifted by his spirit to help build up the body of Christ. I hope that's empowering. We, you know, the church needs you. We need each other. And that is, that was, that was I think, certainly always true. But it's more true than, I think we can safely say, it's more true than ever before in the New Covenant era. Um, we need each other. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, talking about, you know, every body part necessary. Um, my hand was cut off. I would not be able to function as well. Uh, so we need each other. We need to be exercising our gifts because each of us does have gifts. Um, and that's something to talk, talk to your pastors about that if you're kind of like, I don't know what my gift could be. Um, or how I could serve the church. There's so many ways. Um, and that's a great conversation to have. So greater intimacy, greater distribution of gifts, and, again, the spirit who dwelt on Christ now dwells both on and in believers as the spirit of the risen Lord. Something not true before Pentecost. That is the key difference. I think I've kind of said this already in a lot of different ways, but that is one of the key differences um, between pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. Um, the full measure and glory of the blessing of the Spirit had to wait until the ascension of Christ so that he can receive the promised Spirit from the Father and as the reigning Lord pour him out as the messianic spirit. Um, so Jesus himself is coming back to them through the spirit um, in an even greater way, as, uh, as was already mentioned, uh, the intimacy greater, the um, communion is greater. John 14, 18 through 20, you can turn there. John 14, 18 through 20 says... I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What is, what is Jesus talking about here? talking about I'm going to appear to you after I rise from the dead or is it something else something more let me ask let me ask this how do we know it's not merely referring to some resurrection appearances how do we know this passage is pointing to something greater than that I think that it's clear in the details Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 That's that's exactly right. Nice. Yeah. And so, you know, yes, he, uh, Christ, you know, in a like, eh, on a first reading, you might think, oh, he's just talking about like he's gonna appear to them after he rises from the dead. But it's clearly saying more than that. He's talking about, as Kareen said, um, a mutual indwelling, um, which uh, takes place at this great Pentecost event. Um, and Harrison, did you, were you raising your hand? Go for it. That's really good. Yeah, so, again, this helps us figure out John 16, 7, that it's actually for their good that he goes away, because if he doesn't, the spirit or counselor will not come. And it should be clear that by, by now that it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like too obvious, because it's like, yeah, if Jesus didn't go, then the spirit could not come in this way. But, on the other hand, if he does go to his father, then he will be able to send the promised spirit. If he doesn't go, he's not, he doesn't ascend, receive the promised spirit, then he can't pour, pour him out. So, he is now, um, Ferguson sums it up like this, the coming of the spirit is the equivalent of the indwelling of Jesus. And this is for the disciples good because it implies such a close union with Christ that he dwells in them not just with them. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, Jesus became a life-giving spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says, Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
again, Ferguson says the, the equivalent, the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father is found in having the Spirit. Yeah, kind of set it out of order. So having the Spirit now, every one of us who has the Spirit now post-Pentecost, that is the equivalent of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Christ indwelling us. And because he's indwelling us, we are united to him just as he is united to the Father. I don't know what all that means, but it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a glorious reality that we will spend eternity experiencing and comprehending. in the kidney at that security training. Did they lay hands on you guys? No, they were very good. Okay, that's good. That's good. I don't know why they gave me that special treatment. But, no, yeah, thank you. The indestructible life. Yeah. And that made me think, too, you know, of, of the security of the believer. Like, if Christ is in you, there's no undoing of that. There's no losing your union to Christ, losing your salvation. Um, it's also indestructible life in that way too. Um, but yeah, th- thank you, Steve. That was, that's really good. Yeah, Arnie. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was security in Christ. He's the one that holds it, not us. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about our, our point earlier that, that we, can, we shouldn't divorce the word from the spirit. Yeah. We live the word. That's yeah. How, that's how it works. And that's a supernatural, special thing that we have as believers. But I was just thinking, uh, how, how can believers divorce the world? In what way can we do that to our detriment? Oh, you uh, said it? Yeah. In what way can we, in our weaknesses or whatever, how can we divorce? I can think of one way back. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, we can, but I'm thinking we can because, yeah, we can misinterpret the word, yeah, because of irresponsibility and not, yeah, studying it well, you know, yeah, because you know how we isolate the word that's irresponsible, maybe in that way, but, yeah, 
Yeah, I think I think that that's that's good. I think that's a way. Kind of, kind of one of the main ways I was thinking is how sometimes we seek. You know, I, I think it's tempting to kind of seek like an experience, whether it be like a mountaintop experience or, or seek some sort of, uh, or maybe even like sanctification or whatever, or deliverance or something. But we seek that apart from the word. Um, you know, so for, yeah, perhaps we we think that. Uh, the, the, there's some unlocking of the Spirit's power um, that doesn't go hand-in-hand hand, uh, with His Word ministry. That's kind of what I was thinking. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I wish we had more time to discuss this fully. Um, but I think we also divorce the Word from the Spirit if we if we think that merely like reading the Bible or Bible study or preaching, if we think that those things will do anything apart from the Spirit moving in and through them because that can also happen and that's that's why it's important you know that's why we pray you know before um we pray a prayer of illumination before every sermon um you know we pray before this time even because we know that it's in vain for us to go to the word if if the spirit doesn't help us and um grow us and uh enlighten our minds and um stir our affections and um so yeah that's another thing i thought of does anyone have any other thought to his question? This will be the closing thought. Anything? Ethan? I'm just kidding. All right. Let me pray. Lord, um, thank you for this time. We praise you for the gift of the spirit of the risen Christ. Um, that by the spirit, uh, we know you as father. And we know that we are your children through Christ. Um, We need this confidence and assurance um, every day. Um, Help us fix our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.